Next, we're in the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and chapters 5. We're going through both this evening. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Revelation 4 and 5. Last week, we finished out with seven letters to the churches the risen Jesus had directed John to write to in the first vision of the book of Revelation. Each letter corresponded to a particular situation that those churches were experiencing that also correspond to things that we go through in our own day. Evidence in each letter, like you could tell in each letter, and historically what we know of, of the time of John and his ministry, was that the church was, yes, it was growing and spread across the Roman Empire as it was, but it was also marginalized. It was facing a lot of pressures all around it. Uh, to conform to the idolatry and immorality of the culture around them in the Roman world through temptation and through intimidation and through persecution. So that they were serving the risen God of the universe, it sure seemed like anything but the risen God of the universe was leading the world because of the troubles and the pressures. I talked about it being like headwinds. It would be like being a Christian in the ancient world uh, being someone who's going against the stream, moving upstream. Maybe you feel that same way in our own cultural moment, that we're, we feel being a Christian, following Jesus, is like going upstream. I would have felt five times that in the sort of headwinds and tribulations and troubles they were experiencing. So in response, John's letters remind the early church of who Jesus is. In each letter, there was a description, a partial description of the risen king. In each letter, there was a reminder that Jesus sees what's going on. They probably wondered then, why are we going through this? Does God even care? In each letter, Jesus is saying, I see you. I know what's going on. I have a call for you. I have a mission for you in the world. And if you continue and you persevere, there is a reward that you're going to join with me in. What we found is... The rebellious world that we exist in is actually moving upstream against the stream of God's plans. It's the opposite of what we feel as we go through this life. It's really God's stream that's flowing. The rest of the world is fighting against it. And God's stream is eventually going to overtake it all. That's going to be all the more clear as we enter into this next section and part of our series here in Revelation entitled Cosmic Battles. So we were in the letters to the churches for the first four weeks. We're moving into five weeks of Cosmic Battles. That's chapter four, all the way up to chapter 17. We're going to be moving through a lot of content. I'm going to be doing a lot of reading in that time. But this is all regarding the second revelation of John which followed the first one that we already talked about. Now, some see these visions of the book of Revelation as purely chronological in nature. So we started out at the beginning of Revelation and we're moving through time in sequential order. So they look at it and say, okay, everything that we've studied up until right now, chapter four, is the age of the church. And everything I'm gonna talk about from chapter four on is all things that are gonna happen in the future in a sequential order. I'll be upfront that I see these next visions, chapter four and chapter five and onward, as referring to things both past, present, and future. And they largely convey the whole context of where we find ourselves today, just as it would have framed the whole context for where the early church was in their day. 
I don't think that it was only the first three chapters of the book of Revelation that were relevant for believers 2,000 years ago. And then it's been 2,000 years where nothing has taken place in line with the book of Revelation. And now suddenly it's like our generation that gets to unlock the key of 4, 5 and onward. Like you see a Chinese spy balloon yesterday in the news and I'm like, yes, and finally that's Revelation 8, the Chinese spy balloon. Like, no, okay, but... I mean, maybe. We'll get to Revelation 8 in a little bit. But, but what I'm trying to say is I think there was value. I think there were things that were speaking to the past, present, and future to them, just as there are those items for us this evening. Now, as I begin to read, I want to remind you, as I've said earlier in the series, that these revelatory visions need not be seen as literal in their details. Okay, amidst a lot of surreal images and impressions that we're going to hear about in chapters 4 and 5, for instance, there is Jesus appearing as a slain lamb. Now, this is a different picture of Jesus than the one we got in Revelation chapter 1, where he's got the robe and the white hair. He's like the Ancient of Days, the tongue that's a sword coming out of his mouth. So if you're a literalist, you're going, well, which one is it? Is Jesus this or is he that? And some people might walk away and go, well, he's, he's both. Well, yes, he is. He is the risen God King, and he is the lamb that was slain, by which we were all purchased for God. We'll read about that in a second. But I mean he's both, but not in the literal sense, like he's a slain lamb, a dead lamb with a robe on and white hair and a tongue as a sword, like you put all the pictures together. So again, it's not all about being literal in the details, but these are all impressions and images that convey truth in very striking terms that catch our attention. Let's read together here, Revelation chapter 4 and 5. We're going to start in verse 1, and the verses will be on the screen. John writes, After this, that is, after all those letters were given to him, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was the throne in heaven. The appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came peals of thunder and flashes of lightning, rumblings. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. 
things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne of the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Revelation 4 and 5. And it seems the only appropriate response is for me not to talk and let's just bring up Katie and Brian, and they'll lead us in some worship right now. But before we get there, and we will get there, that's how we're going to finish out our time. It is the appropriate response. Let's look at what is being conveyed in this scene. As we begin, we find that John has exited the first vision concerning the letters to the churches, and then he sees a door to heaven open before him. Now, I know a lot of you are reading the book of Ezekiel right now in your private study, but that is exactly where the book of Ezekiel begins. The prophet sees this door to heaven open up. And the voice that initially called John in his first vision calls out to him again to invite him into yet another revelatory adventure. Now again, as in his first vision, it says that John was in the Spirit. This is again similar to when Ezekiel received his vision. He was in the Spirit. And he said he was being shown what must take place after these things. This is like a little tip of the hat, again, to Daniel chapter 2. I talked about this several weeks ago in this series, that Daniel was given in Daniel chapter 2 this vision of a kingdom, the kingdom of God, that would overtake all the kingdoms of the earth. And what was said to him was that these are things that are going to happen in the later days. Now we're talking about things that are going to take place after these things. We're coming into the present moment. And like Daniel's other vision in chapter 7, there are many similarities in these two scenes between Revelation 4 and 5 and that chapter in the book of Daniel. I'm encouraging you, go back, read Ezekiel, 
Go back, read the book of Daniel. They're relevant for this series. Because when you look at Daniel 7, you've got a lot of similar things. Like I said, you've got the throne room of God. You've got the prophet being troubled. God being described. Jesus approaching God's throne. God's kingdom being said to be established forever and ever. And God's people being joined into that promise. And back in Ezekiel chapter 1, you have several things that are linked up with this passage. You've got the same similar description of God. You've got the throne room again. You've got something like this sea of glass that is clear as crystal. You've got the four living creatures. So what I mean to say, giving you all this background, is that the experience of Revelation is sort of like when you listen and watch an epic movie. You know an epic movie series like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, and some of you right now, you're like, that's why I don't like the book of Revelation. I don't like those movies. No, I don't mean that's in the content of Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. But in the soundtrack of Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, you've got like a melody, right? That's famous all the time. You know, like, and, and that melody plays, and then it's picked up later on, but with a variation. You know, like Lord of the Rings... You know, like, it's kind of creepy when I say it's, it's better with Lord of the Rings, but, like, you watch the first one, and that melody is placed into that epic movie, and then when you come back and you watch the later ones, or you watch, you know, a very, you go to the prequels, they take that same melody, and then they shift it a bit, and it shows continuity between the two stories. So that's what's happening here. In the book of Revelation, God is setting up a continuity between everything past, all the prophecies through the Bible, all the plans that have been developing through time. But there's a change. There's things that are being added to it. There's variations. Like this puzzle was being put together through human history from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And now John is receiving additional pieces that have been left out of that picture formerly. So let's dive into some of these pieces and what could be conveyed in the details and then we can step back and survey the whole. Beginning with chapter 4, this is like the familiar melody. Chapter 4 is like getting us up to speed. It's like, this is what happened on the last episode of Blank. You know, when, you, when you're watching a Netflix series and have a three-minute introduction where basically you don't have to watch the series. You go to the last episode and they'll give you a Cliff Notes version of the entire show and then you can watch, you know, that last episode and you got the series. Like, like chapter four takes us through the Old Testament vision of God, what Daniel saw, what Ezekiel saw. Okay, at first, you have a description of it in extremely opaque terms because this is the God of the universe that you can't even like lay eyes on, flesh can't lay eyes on without perishing. So he's depicted kind of in a second-hand way through these precious stones that are magnifying the radiance of his glory. And through the radiance is this rainbow that's cast behind him like an emerald. And, and again, like, the rainbow has so much meaning in the Bible. This is, a, this is a sign that God gave his people on the other side of the destruction of the world, right? It's a, it's a picture of God's mercy and grace to Noah amidst judgment and justice for the rest of the world. But it's also... When, you know, taken together with the colors that we're talking about and the precious gems, all showcasing the masterwork of God and his creativity through creation. 
You know, it's really ironic. If you think about it, you know, every bit of artwork that human beings create is in some way derivative and a copy of something God first did. You know, anything that human beings create is, is based somewhere along the line on the raw materials of God's own creation. Now, the funny thing is, when you have an artist, even if they're really talented, even if they're really great, but all they do is copy the art of someone else, they're seen as inferior to an artist that can actually generate original content, right? It doesn't matter how skilled they are, they can't make their own art. They're inferior to other artists. And, and interestingly, every artist is copying first the original work of God in some way, yet we give artists so much credit. We say, oh my gosh, I can't believe what you've created, I can't believe what you've done. And we forget that the origin is in God and his work gets overlooked so often, he is not honored. God's original creative masterwork and power are on display in his throne room. Seated around his throne are the 24 thrones of the elders. You might be wondering why 24 and who are the elders, and I'm so glad that you've asked me that right now in this one-way dialogue. The book of Chronicles, again, everyone's favorite. After you guys are done with Ezekiel, you're going to jump right into the book of Chronicles. It speaks to the details of temple worship in ancient Israel and the ancient civilization of God's people. And in chapters 24 to 26, the number 24 comes up several times. You've got 24 priests who are put over the orders of priests. In chapter 26, you have 24 Levites, these priests, these pastors of the temple who are set up as gatekeepers over the temple. And in chapter 25, you have 24 of these Levites, these priests, these pastors who are dedicated as experts in leading temple worship. The last group I referenced, okay, these guys are the original starving musicians of the ancient world. Except they weren't starving. God said, I want to select these 24 individuals that are going to lead. And there were many others who are part of this commission. And I'm going to give them instruments. And their one job is going to be to declare the praises of God, to speak his messages, and to play music alongside it. And I want you to support them. They were the original worship leaders, and that appears to be at least part of the job of these 24 elders in this throne room. The number 24 could also correspond to the 12 patriarchs that made up the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, put together with the 12 apostles. So this continuity again between God's first covenant and commitment with the Jewish people captured in the Old Testament, as well as the new people of God, the true Israel and the 12 apostles seen in the story of the New Testament. So the whole people of God are now dressed like Jesus said the people of God would be. These elders are dressed in white. That's what Jesus says we're going to be dressed in. And they're given these crowns to wear. That's what Jesus says he's going to share with all of his people. They are part of this worship scene. Now for some, they believe these 24 elders are literal offices that New Testament and Old Testament saints are actually going to hold in heaven. I won't be one because I can't play guitar worth anything. And apparently that comes with the gig. So I know I'm not in. But, but other people go, well, you know, no one's actually named. Why wouldn't he name? Here's Elijah and here's this prophet and here's that individual from the New Testament. 
So maybe they're angelic beings. Or maybe they're symbolic of God's people. You know, I would say because of the role that they play that we see here in the throne room, that's based on the book of Chronicles and based on their dress, the fact that they're in the white and they've got the crowns, they represent the spiritual authorities of God's people who are now submitting continuously to God's authority in heaven. Reading on, we've got additional details given regarding the setting of the throne. Verse 5 talks about thunder and lightning appearing before the throne, as at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, when God renewed that first covenant, the promise he gave to Abraham with the person of Moses. Now guys, if you don't know Exodus 19, if you don't know Chronicles, if you haven't read Ezekiel or the book of Daniel, I'm not trying to shame you. This is the history of God's people that is being brought into this beautiful picture, this culmination in the book of Revelation. Don't feel bad. There's a lot of people that don't know American history, and we were all forced to take classes on American history. So it's not like, I know so much, and you know so little, and everyone here has read all these books. No, I'm just trying to convey the background, pique your interest in the scriptures, show you the united whole that it is. But the purpose of what I'm even talking about, Exodus 19, Mount Sinai, is that at Mount Sinai, with the thunder and the lightning and the fire, the people were struck with fear when they encountered the power of God. Now, we are so insulated here in California from God's power on display in nature, in natural disasters, that is. I mean, the rest of the country right now, Texas even, we got friends who moved to Texas, completely frozen over, uh, friends bought beautiful home with all these trees, giant mature trees. They've all just been torn to shreds by the ice storm. And basically, everywhere that everyone moved to escape California during COVID is being destroyed right now. So don't tell that to your friends that left, but uh, we can just remember that. But, but something that's lost in translation is the fact that like, we don't get lightning and thunder. If all you've ever known is growing up here, you don't understand lightning and thunder. When it rains, we're like, I'm not sure if I can make it to church. It's drizzling. You know, and then we get really pumped when we see like a flash in the sky, maybe 40 miles away. We're like, oh, I think I saw a flash. And we wait for the thunder and it never comes. That's how far away the lightning always is. But if you've been in a thunder and lightning storm, you understand the boom of the lightning and the thunder that shakes your chest. I mean, you understand what it's like when lightning snakes across the sky and crackles and snaps like a whip. I mean, that's the experience that John is having before the throne of God. It is much more impressive. There's seven lamps which correspond to the seven spirits and the complete spirit, the Holy Spirit, as referenced before the throne. There's also, as verse 6 suggests, something like that sea of glass, as clear as crystal, still and pristine. Now, what's up with that sea of glass? Well, through Revelation, and in the Bible in general, and in ancient texts, period, the sea is often depicted as a metaphor for evil and the forces of chaos. In the ancient world, the sea was a frightening thing. There were a lot of maritime disasters. They didn't tame the seas like we do with cruise ships that have slides and pools. And No, 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 you didn't have that. 
And it was an area where we had very little control over nature and very little security. And human beings, we are not built to be dropped into the middle of the ocean or to be dropped into the middle of a lake. We don't thrive in that environment. So the sea is often depicted as a source of chaos. That's why in the later chapters of the book of Revelation, the beast that wages war against God's people is said to emerge from the sea. But in the new creation, in the fulfillment of it in Revelation 21.1, we find in the new Jerusalem, new creation, there is no sea, it says. And before God's throne, there are no raging waters, just this expanse of crystal, calm and pure. So that isn't to say there are no beaches in heaven, because I would never assert that in Huntington Beach. I do not want to be crucified today, but maybe there are. But, but really what this is conveying to us is that God has the power to still the forces of chaos that exists in the world, to quell evil and calm it to crystal clear. Now, in the center of the vision are these striking living creatures who will later carry out judgments on the world in the later chapters that we're going to study. And they're clearly divine beings of power. The different faces representing animals or creatures at the height of their category of animal. You've got the lion who's the king of the predators, right? You've got the ox that is the strongest domesticated animal. You've got the eagle, which is the king of the birds. And then you have the human being, which is at the height of the created order. Adding to the surrealness of their appearance, they said to have eyes all over and within and underneath their wings and all that. It might encourage nightmares for you to picture if you close your eyes and you begin to picture it. But the description of these creatures was meant to encourage early believers. You understand the plight of those early Christians. They were persecuted, they're being marginalized, they're being pushed in a corner, they're being excluded from society. And one of the encouragements that Jesus gives them so many times in his letters is, I see you. He tells them over and over and over again, what they needed to hear was, I see you. So these creatures that have eyes all over that are going to go and execute judgments upon the earth, they are knowing creatures. They see all that is going on in the world. They can be exact in their judgments. But their core purpose, as in everything in the throne room, as in everything in all God's creation and among God's people, their core purpose is to worship. Now, if you want to know what's the main heart of this scene in chapter 4 in the book of Revelation, it's this. God reigns on his throne. He always has, and he always will. And he is holy. He is the first and the last. He is the creator of all. He's higher, he's greater, he's other. And as such, he is worthy to receive all praise and honor and glory and power attributed to him day and night, for he is eternal and the origin of all that is. It says when the angelic creatures began to worship him, as they continually do, the elders would then lay down their crowns, their privilege, their status, as everything in creation should do, and they fall down and worship him forever and ever continuously. Now, the world, I feel like, is always looking for someone or something to worship. It is built into us. That desire to do the very thing that we see 
in Revelation chapter 4. And a lot of times our worship is directed toward our fellow human beings. You know, we find reasons to no, almost deify people, if not deify people in, in our imaginations. You know, I think about like sports athletes. A lot of times we'll worship, we'll lift up, we'll think they're so much more than us if they're at the height of their sport. But we find they're, they're fallible human beings. A lot of people that get to the height of their sport, they can't even stay married. I mean, what more do you need of evidence of their fallibility? Their own spouses don't want to stay with them. And the rest of the world is like, oh my gosh, this person, they're so much greater. They're so fantastic what they can accomplish. And it's like they have everything seemingly that you can want in your imagination. All the fame and all this glory and all this satisfaction. But it never comes. They're just fallible human beings. And in governments, there are governments around the world that literally have thousands, millions, billions of people almost deifying them. Got these totalitarian leaders that set up posters of themselves and teach kids in the schools to sing songs of their greatness. You're like, is this medieval? This isn't medieval. This is going on in the world right now. The majority of the world is probably living under this sort of rule. And they deify these leaders, right? In the ancient world, you had Caesar. In the time of John's writing, the book of Revelation, Caesar was said to be this God king. He was more than just a man. He was a God. And you had all these different kingdoms that they had conquered. And he let them keep the title of king in their you know, respective areas. But they would all have to pay homage. They would all have to do what we see in this throne room vision of chapter 4. They'd all lay down their crowns and pay homage to the true God king over them. But every Caesar, the Caesar that was ruling at the time when John was writing, that God King died and he came to nothing. And he was replaced by another Caesar, another God King, who then died and came to nothing. Just as all kingdoms will come to nothing, just as all kings and celebrities and athletes and the rich will come to nothing apart from Jesus. So you want to know who rules? You want to know what's at the center of the cosmos? Do you want to know the headwaters of all that we're experiencing that is downstream? The headwaters are this throne room. And this that we're experiencing downstream in our life, in this creation, it's all streams that are going to return to the same place, the throne room of God, the temple where God dwells eternal, surrounded by true worship. To chapter 5. In the throne room, John sees a stroll on the right hand of God upon the throne with writing on both sides and seals with seven seals. Now here I want to step back and help you understand this transition because in chapter 4 we have that vision of God which transcends time. It's what Ezekiel saw. It's what Daniel saw. It's like taking us through the previous episodes of the Bible. It's moving us from the Old Testament up into something new. Something that's going to be a development that occurs here. And Daniel specifically was given a view into some of these future events. Like he heard a little bit of details about the coming of Jesus and the kingdom of God and how that will be shared with God's people in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel. But in Daniel chapter 12, God reaches even further with Daniel. And he starts talking about what's going to happen in the end times, before the end, before God brings that total redemption and restoration. And he's speaking in more and more abstract terms. And, G and, and Daniel is questioning who we now know to be Jesus in Daniel chapter 12 
about this and he wants to know more and he wants to know more and he's more curious. And Jesus stops him and says, you know enough. That's as much as you're going to know. Now carry on with your life. This is going to be sealed up in a scroll until the right time. You're not going to know it until you pass away and are resurrected with the saints. So I believe here is the scroll referenced in Daniel chapter 12, 500 years prior, that reveals and unveils God's plan and path of redemption with seven seals upon it. Now we know that this is similar to an item of the ancient world. The Romans, when they'd establish a last will and testament, it would be established with seven seals. So you'd have seven witnesses of the person who wrote up their will, and they'd all say, okay, I know what's in the will, and I'm going to seal it with this wax seal. And there would need to be an executor to that will who would break open the seals and fulfill the wishes of that person's last will and testament. I myself am the executor of my own parents' will. It's a very awkward conversation to have. You're hanging out with your parents and say, oh, that was a wonderful stake you made. By the way, son, when I die, you know, like that's the next thing. It's like, oh, great, great conversation here. But they elected me to be the executor of their will so that when they pass, I make sure that I carry out their wishes. So here's where the drama begins because this angelic messenger is calling out for one worthy to take this scroll from the hand of God and open it to be the executor of God's plans for human history. And we find for a moment that there is no one holy enough or righteous enough from among humankind to open it because all have sinned. This scroll, which depicts and ushers in the new creation, the fulfillment of all the Bible's promises from the beginning, has no human capable of unsealing its contents. So for a moment, for just a moment, John is struck with the weight of living in between, without hope, without a way forward in the world, without a heaven, without a redemption, with just the troubles of this world and no recourse, no way out. There's nothing that's going to happen after it. You know, for a moment I was stuck on Christmas Eve. I ran out of gas while I was driving. I was on uh, Ellison Ward, which is right by the entrance to the 405, on Christmas Eve, middle of the day. There's no median. I was right in the middle uh, and uh, ran out of gas. And that's pretty much the worst place you can run out of gas. On the worst day, you can run out of gas. People were apparently last-minute shopping. Everyone in the entire world was last-minute shopping. There was no way for me to even get out of my truck. And if you know me, this isn't going to surprise you because my phone was dead, and, uh, and it wasn't with me. It was dead, and I thought, I'm just running to go get this thing. I left it at home, so I didn't even have a way to charge it. So here I am sitting in my truck, dead in the middle of the road. You can't push this truck. <laughs> no one could push the truck, not just me. I mean, I couldn't push the Honda Civic, but I couldn't push the truck, definitely. And I can't even open the door. Car's coming this way, car's going that way, and I just thought, I'm, I'm done. This is it. They're going to find me in this car, you know, catatonic two weeks later. No, it's going to be the new year. Like, what now? And I literally sat there and thought, what now? Like, I didn't have an option. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go next to solve the dilemma I was in. And I literally just sat there. I'm not going to say I wept like John. You know, maybe I was close, but, you know, John wept in that in-between. You know, on such a higher cosmic scale, there's no recourse. There's no way forward. What now? 
And I was saved by the initiative of someone outside myself, literally a good Samaritan, pulls in front of me, sees me from a distance, pulls in front of me, takes his truck, puts a tow strap on my truck, and pulls me to a gas station. I mean, this for the pastor who's driven by people on the side of the road and not helped them. I've fallen right into the parable of the good Samaritan in that scenario. I'm just being honest with you guys, different sermon for a different time. But here is one who steps up outside of John's initiative, outside of our initiative. One of the elders directs John's attention to the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who has triumphed. He's come to rescue, like I was rescued on the road. Jesus, who was from an earthly perspective, from the Davidic royal line, meaning he could fulfill all the prophecies and promises of the scriptures. And yet he was also God. He in his sinless life and in his offering of his own life for our redemption is alone worthy to open the seals. John looks to see this lion and he sees a slain lamb. Like God, Jesus now appears, the slain lamb in verse 6, in the center of this enthronement with now the four living creatures and the 24 thrones surrounding him as much as they're surrounding God. His description is, I believe, impressive. I mentioned he's slain, though he's standing. And so that you wouldn't believe that he's weak. Upon his head are these seven horns. A horn is a symbol of power, of strength in the scriptures. And seven is the number of completeness. So, so though he's a slain lamb, he is the slain lamb who possesses complete power. And the seven spirits are his eyes. They were formerly the lamps around the throne of God. Now they are the eyes who have gone out into the world, it says. Meaning he is now active by his Holy Spirit across the entirety of creation. Without hesitation, Jesus goes and takes the scroll from the hand of God. And that is a moment, a seismic moment of cosmic proportions. The creatures and elders fall down immediately and now it's time for a new song it says a song of redemption the first gospel song for jesus is worthy to open the seals to usher in god's redemptive plan and the reason is this he was slain and his blood purchased for god all of us this picture of a slain lamb is taken from again the book of exodus of the passover lamb God's people were crying out, we're being oppressed, we're being marginalized. God, fulfill your promises to us in the world. We're being kept in slavery in Egypt. And God heard their prayers and responded and sent this earthly deliverer, Moses, to free God's people by proclaiming ten plagues, ten judgments against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And the final judgment was the worst. It was going to be the killing of all the firstborn in Egypt, firstborn sons. So God's people were directed, okay, so that, that judgment doesn't fall upon you, kill an unblemished male lamb and spread the blood across your doorpost and the angel of death will pass over you and this judgment will not befall you. The lamb of God, Jesus, was killed as a Passover lamb in our place to absorb our spiritual death, to absorb judgment so that we might be free 
And that exchange has purchased our lives for God. People from every background, we're all different. We all got a different story. We all got a different source and ethnicity in this world. But all of us alike have been purchased from every tribe and tongue and nation to be one nation, a kingdom of priests who reflect and speak God's truth to the world and who will one day rule alongside him forever. And now at the final portion, we run it back for another round of worship. But this one is a reflection of the outcome of the gospel. As John spins around in verse 11, I mean, you can just imagine it. You're in this experience. And it says it's not only the four living creatures, but now it's the 24 elders, and now it's thousands of angels joining in this chorus. It's not just thousands, it's a myriad of myriads. It's 10,000 times 10,000. We've got millions of angels that are being added to this chorus around John. You can imagine, like, singing in a stadium filled with people, the voices, the way that would sound. But it's like he's looking around, and there's a stadium filled with angels, and then there's a stadium added, and a stadium added, and a stadium added. And then to all that singing is every creature on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and everything in it giving praise and honor and glory and power and wealth and wisdom to the Lamb who was slain. The four living creatures say amen, and the elders fall down again in worship. It's a striking scene here in chapters 4 and 5. I know this message was a little longer. I don't often preach 40 minutes. Some pastors, some of the greatest preachers of all time, legendary, preach 45 minutes. They preach an hour. I don't consider myself legendary, so I don't take that liberty very often. But there's so much here. This scene is so important here in Revelation 4 and 5. There's a couple things I want us to walk away with. Number one, worship of God and Jesus is at the center of the entire cosmos. The worship of God and Jesus is at the center, it's at the core of the entire cosmos. We're in a section of our study called cosmic battles. I don't know if you use that word cosmic a lot, cosmos. But it's the Greek concept of the ordered world around us. That the heavens are ordered, that the earth is ordered, that heaven itself all is pristinely engineered in this expanse that we find ourselves in. And God and Jesus are at the center of all this ordering, of all this engineering, of everything that surrounds it. They're at the core in a state of being perpetually worshipped. Like, you have the face of a watch, let's say. We live on the face of the watch, but behind it is all the gears, it's all the things that drive the face of the watch. And beneath the face of the watch is this, is this core act of the worship of God in the throne room of God. And our life is found and society thrives when our minds, hearts, our actions are aligned with this core drive to worship at the center of the universe. And though the world itself is chaotic through sin and immorality and idolatry, the message of the book of Revelation is that it is going to be like a guitar tuned to the harmony of the worship of God. You understand, John is sitting there on a rock. He's tortured and he's in a place of exile in this world. And seemingly this whole world, the way that it operates, God can't be on the throne. But John sees things as they actually are. This is the harmony of heaven. And it's a harmony that's going to be brought to earth. All that sin, all that suffering, all that immorality, Jesus is going to take you're going to see in the next several chapters of the book of Revelation, and he's going to tune it to the harmony of heaven. 
And one day in heaven, guys, I'll be out of a job. And I don't know how many of you will be sad. Whereas our worship leaders will get to keep their harps. You know, I, I'm out of a job. There's no more preaching. You know, it, it already is. You know, we're in the fulfillment of it. But the worship continues. And the song and the proclamation through song continues. So if you don't understand music and you don't understand worship, I want to challenge you to think about there is nothing deficient in music and the worship of God. I want you to instead consider what is hesitant, what is resistant in you. For the worship, the love of God in song is at the core of all things. Number two, I want us to walk away with this. God and Jesus are enthroned now. I think I've said this in three messages out of the five in this series, but I'm saying it again. And I'm going to say it probably 10 more times before the series is over. God and Jesus are enthroned now. Like it says in the outset of the book of Revelation, God is and was and is to come. It's not that he was and is to come. God is and was and is to come. He has been enthroned from the time of Daniel and before. Through the cross, Jesus is presently enthroned. He says in Revelation 3 to one of the churches, if you're victorious and you remain patient and endure with me, I will share my throne with you and you can sit with me just as I have sat in my father's throne and share in his authority. So this isn't future. He's already purchased the people for himself, a kingdom of priests. The Bible already depicts us as ruling alongside Jesus in part even now. So he's not off somewhere, disconnected from us, waiting for some things to happen to be involved in his creation. He is presently on the throne and he is presently engaged with this world as he rules it with all authority. He knows what's going on in our lives. He's actively engaged in our lives. Your prayers, the prayers of God's people, where do they appear in Revelation chapter 5? They're in a bowl of incense right before the throne. When you're going through things, when you're suffering, when you're crying out, when you're pleading for something, it's not that it's being lost in translation. It's right there, right now, present before God as he is present on the throne of the universe. Yes, there's going to be future events recorded here, but Jesus is not waiting to be enthroned by his father. He endured, he patiently endured, he offered his life, he was slain, and he's now counted worthy to receive the throne, just as he will share it with us as we patiently endure in his example. But remember, number three, this is my final thought for us. Let's always remember it's the slain lamb who rules. The lion of the tribe of Judah is a slain lamb. Jesus was worthy because he endured the evil of the world and conquered it through his death, not by fighting evil with more evil. In every age, that's what the church is constantly tempted to do, to try to overcome evil with evil. The church is tempted to want to be a lion, not a slain lamb. Even worse, we're tempted to want to be like the beast, to function like the beast, which is the enemy of God's people. But we have a slain lamb as our example. Consider the letters of Jesus did not instruct the church, the seven churches, to, hey, guys, I want you to be 
rebellious, and I want you to lead this violent uprising, and I want you to be usurpers, and I want you to get all this influence in the world, and usher in payback for your oppressors. Like worldly leaders tell us to do, like politicians will try to convince the church to do in the pursuit of worldly power through worldly means. But to follow Jesus, that's what we were called to do. In his example of patient endurance, that's how we receive our crowns in the kingdom of God. Vengeance is always God's territory. Vengeance is always God's territory. And he promises he will enact it in the right way. Our Christian ends never justify worldly means. You know, there are people that say, but we, have, we want to do this for God. But all of this is for God's kingdom. So it doesn't matter if we use the tools of the world to get to those godly, holy means. They never, no matter our ends, it never is justified by worldly means. The application, what is always ours in every generation, like what we're supposed to do with our life is always just the means, not the ends. And the means is always the way of Jesus, the way of the slain lamb. We are always to walk in his word, to walk in his commands, to walk in his example and in his name, who leads us like the slain lamb. The ends of everything that everybody fixates on in the world, the ends for our lives, how your life is going to play out, how my life is going to play out, how the story of the nation of America is going to play out. What in the world's going to happen with a Chinese spy balloon? The ends are never for us to determine. They have nothing to do with us. They are always for Jesus to determine because the scroll is in his hand. The scroll is in his hand. I'm not trying to tell us, hey guys, live your life passively. But I am telling you, always live with perspective. We have one mission throughout our whole lives to live in the same means as Jesus lived. And he promises he will take care of the ends. Man, that is a reason for praise. That is a reason for worship, for honor, for glory, for strength, for wealth, for wisdom to be attributed to him. And I want us to go there in a place of worship. But let's just reflect for a few moments in prayer. Would you pray with me?